What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast Season 3. This is the Season 3 premiere. I'm really stoked about it. We've had several weeks off. I don't even know how long it's been off. But in the meantime, since the last one, I released a new album called Corey and the Wong Notes with the whole YouTube series kind of like variety show thing that goes along with it. So if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's on YouTube. It's free. And also the album you just like listen to wherever you listen to music. It's there. All right. Today, we got Joe Bonamassa. This season is going to be slamming. I got a lot of great guests. Some you may have seen on a little flyer or something. Others I have not announced yet because it's nice to surprise people once in a while. You know, sometimes you got to be prepared. Sometimes it's good to have a surprise. Anyways, today's episode, Joe Bonamassa. You may know Joe as one of the leading voices in blues guitar these days. You may know him as one of the several young blues guitarists who was just like part of this graduating class of the late 90s or something. I don't know. Just felt like there was this one era where it's like Bonamassa, Derek Trucks, Johnny Lang, Kenny Wayne Shepard. I think somebody else in there too. Would Eric Gales count in there? Eric Gales is in a world of his own. Anyways, we talk about Gales in this insane guitar player. I love Eric Gales. Back to Bonamassa. I did not know a ton about Joe going into, but I did do diligence preparing for the interview. And I listened to a lot of his albums. I listened to his live stuff. I read other interviews with him and... Of course, his reputation is one that uh, is one of, like anybody who has strong opinions or like anybody who has any level of popularity or quote unquote fame, whatever you call it, there's mixed reviews on Joe. But you know what? Joe's cool. I really enjoyed my conversation with him and I address this exact thing here. He's a polarizing person. Some people have polarizing opinions about him and that's okay. And I guess that's just... Actually, I think it's when you know you're doing something right is when people have really strong opinions about you. So without further ado, let's hit it. Joe Bonamassa. You guys hip to DistroKid yet? It is the easiest, fastest, and cheapest way to get your music onto streaming services like Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, pretty much anywhere else that people consume music. You can get an account starting at $19.99 per year. Per year... You get unlimited uploads, and you keep 100% of your earnings. 100%. So for somebody like me, I put, out, I put out a lot of albums last year. It was still just one annual price, no matter how many albums I have up. And I keep 100% of the earnings that come in. There's a lot of reasons I love DistroKid, but the ones I want to highlight here are the Teams feature. So basically, I can assign a percentage of royalties to go to any of my collaborators, however we work it out or my managers work with their managers and we work out, you know, whatever percentage split. My percentage goes to me and then DistroKid gives the other percentage to the other collaborator or artist. It works amazing. And neither one of us as artists needs to handle the accounting. DistroKid just does it for us. Set. If you'd like to give them a try, use my VIP link to get 30% off your first year of DistroKid membership. DistroKid.com slash VIP slash Corey Wong. There it is. Let's get to the episode. Well, Joe, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you on the show. 
Thanks for having me, man. I was uh, I was uh, listening to a bunch of your podcasts, and uh, I really enjoyed what you guys are doing. Really passionate about the guitar and music, and it's good to see. Yeah, well, thanks, man. It's really fun to have you on, and many people have requested you as a guest. Mm-hmm. Uh, Myself included. So here we are. Right. Well, thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm honored to be here. So you've toured a ton and you notoriously play a lot of gigs in a given year. You do a lot of albums. You do a lot of gigs. You stay busy. I love that. What have you had to adjust the most since not being able to play gigs the last year or so? Well, to begin with, when we got sent home on March 12th from Minneapolis, we were supposed to play the State Theater in Minneapolis. Ah, yeah. Two nights, Friday and Saturday. And we had, we had shown up at Green Bay the, the, the previous Tuesday and had a day off. And we were supposed to play Wednesday, day off Thursday, and then two nights in Minneapolis. And Tuesday, we were, we were good to go. And it started to scale and snowball a little bit throughout the week before. And, but, you know, we were calling ahead going, Hey, what do you want to do? Are we doing this or not? They set up the gear, the crew goes in, they, they, they put the PA in the air, caterers fire up the bacon and eggs, you know, and uh, about 1030, I get a call from the tour manager saying, Hey, what time do you want to leave for Minneapolis today? And I go, I go standard time, 1015 after the gig goes, now the governor just canceled us. That's when I knew we were done. We show up to Minneapolis, put on the whole charade, but then they, it canceled at the last minute. I said, everybody, we're going home. Enough is enough. The weirdest, uh, the adjustment for me at first was it was it was a brick wall, and it was very difficult to come off the come off the, the the roller coaster. But to be honest with you, this has been the year that I've needed to take off for ten years, and would have never done this myself. And I hate to say that you know, it, it, out of this huge negative impact on both society and people's health and their lives. The one positive that I could say that has affected it in my world has been the fact that it forced me to take a break that I would have never taken on my own. And I think that's going to I think that bodes well for my future and and my future mental health and stability. I think a lot of artists have found that sort of thing. It's one of those things that when the like you're saying, the roller coaster, once it gets going, like, mm-hmm. man, we got to ride this thing while it's while the speed is up. But at some point, we're going to have to take a year off just for our mental and physical health. Yeah. And many of us just had to do that. Well, you know, that's the thing. It's like it's like a freight train. The hardest thing about a freight train is getting it rolling. Once it's rolling, it's hard to get it stopped unless there's a brick wall. And yeah. in our case, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, you guys are you, you know, you're, you guys are road dogs. You, you, you make your you make your money and and reputation by going out there and selling at retail to thousands and thousands and thousands of adoring fans. And, and that's how it works. You know, it's not like, you know, it's not like it's a, a streaming pop radio thing where you just sit by the mailbox in your bathroom yeah. waiting for the check <laughs> to come in. It's a little bit different. Yeah. We're in a different world. Ultimately, you know, everybody has to take stock in their lives. And, and I'm, I'm also very, very cool with that. My touring life and my professional career life could look a lot differently when I, when I, re- I do return. I'm not sure who's going to come back. But the, the, the deal I always made with myself, as long as it's fun, as long as I still have that youthful enthusiasm, I can still play too many notes over blues rock changes. I don't care who shows up. We're going to go play anyway. That's the, yeah. that's the bottom line. I heard that you're a, quite the gangster when it comes to your deals and touring, and I am down 
with this. And I got to I got to get it I got to get a little info because uh I've had other people talk about doing this sort of thing and you're rolling the most gangster I've heard out of anybody. You don't take the traditional route where you book tours through promoters. Right. I've heard that you rent the venues yourself mm-hmm. and you promote the shows yourself. And that way you're taking promoter side and artist side. That's what I'm talking about. Tell me how you started pulling that off. It all started in 2005 when I was it, it, domestically. Um, I was starting to draw about 200 to a thousand people it would just it would be all over the shop so it's almost incredible it'd be incredibly hard to scale a tour meaning one night you're playing to 180 people the next night you're in fort wayne indiana and you got 1200 you know production is based on the size you know is once it once it starts to even out you can actually go okay we can bring this amount of lights we can afford to do this and that and we'd always have this standing house gig in, in Jacksonville, Florida, and in, in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, which at that point in time were my two biggest markets domestically. And we were firewalled by these promoters, uh, my manager and I, who now been together for 30 years. And they basically, all intents and purposes, you know, told William Morris, my agent at the time, which, by the way, I don't have an agent anymore either. Got rid of them. Um, so, so if you want to keep it going. You want, you want, yeah, that's an extra 10%. I like that. Called the keep vertical it. integration. Keep at it. I'm in this. I'm, this is what I'm here for. Okay. And that's, and where he goes, how do you get all those fucking guitars, Bonamassa? It's called a vertical integration. So <laughs> the idea is we started to look at these markets and we're going, they were offering us $3,500 or $2,500. And those were our biggest paydays. And we said, well, how much if we took all the gross receipts from this one club tour we were doing and promoted the Embassy Theater in Fort Wayne, which we still play, which holds 2,600 seats. We knew we couldn't sell 2,600 seats, but we were in, we were in the place that B.B. King played. And I'd open yeah. for him there. Same thing in Jacksonville. We went from this place called Freebird Live to where it was kind of a club to the Florida Theater, which was 1,600 seats. We knew we couldn't sell 1,600 seats, but people don't have eyes in the back of their head. And then we could shut the balcony down. We, we raised the ticket price to, and we, we went out and rented some lights and, and, and made it like, you know, we were pretend rock stars. Like we've actually put on a real gig. By the time it was all said and done, $3,500 turned into $25,000 after, after you paid all the expenses. Ding, 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 ring the bell. Okay, now how do you scale it? Well, then every tour from 2000 to 2008, we would cherry pick our best markets and we would go in and we would four wall. And four wall is just a a highfalutin Madison Avenue term for we're going to rent the venue and put the gig on sale. And by the time 2008 ended, we were not only four walling, Everything in in America, we were four walling in in Europe as well, and we don't now we don't do a show that has a traditional quote unquote promoter with it because of those reasons, and we can put on the kind of production and show that we really think the fans deserve, and that and that's basically the model is betting yeah. on yourself time and time and time again. Absolutely, and for for those that are listening who don't know what maybe some sort of traditional deal might be. Eight, like let's say for numbers' sake, well, let's just let's do it an even hundred thousand in gross receipts for for a concert. Typical deal might be a guarantee versus a percentage like fifty or whatever, or maybe just a door deal sixty sixty five percent. So right out of the gate, you sell a hundred thousand dollars in tickets. You're walking with sixty five thousand. 
your booking agent takes 10%. So now you're walking with 58 or 59, whatever thousand. And then you have your expenses on that. Then your manager's taking 10 or 20. Yeah. And the government's taking 39. Yeah. You got to count them in as a partner. Absolutely. And and to use blues numbers, let's start with $1,000. <laughs> blues to, numbers. To, let's use blues numbers here. Keep it real for the kids. Yeah. Think about it. Everybody goes, the model is, you know, we'd rather have 100 people at $10 and 80 people at 20. Where are you making more money? 100, 100 people at $10 is $1,000 at the door. Yeah. 80 people at 20 is $1,600. And yeah. you're making more money and you can read now. Now, again, I don't want to sound like, well, it's all about the dollars and cents, but yeah. having extra cash flow in the business of music allows you to reinvest in yourself, reinvest in your fans going, hey, listen, you know, I'm sorry we have to charge 20 bucks, but these lights are not free. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, 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 and the gas to get us there is not free. These, you, you want to, you want to have Anton Fig on the drums. You want to have Michael Rhodes, Reese Wines on, you know, on the bass and keyboards. These guys don't come cheap. Yeah. They don't, they think every, that $20 that you pay at the door, every single dollar goes to the ours, which in, you, in your situation, you know, that is completely yeah. not true. Then if yeah. you add the agents and the managers and everything else, it's just less cash flow to reinvest in not only yourself and your fans. I like that. I'm super impressed because I mean, the, the thing is, if your overhead is going to be, call it 30 grand a show, if you're doing a traditional promoter deal, it doesn't that that's not going to change your overhead. So as soon as you kind of raise the ceiling for yourself, you're allowing the show to be able to have a little more resources put into it your career in general, the fan experience. And honestly, I think $20 is a totally reasonable price for a ticket. Well, yeah. And we don't play for $20, but it, but it's, but it's, it's scaled yeah. in how many, how many yeah. people they know. Now, the only exception to that model is what Live Nation was doing right before the pandemic. Live Nation was basically going, listen, we own the venues. We're going to package up four or five bands and, you know, you know, the AG was doing it as well. We packed up four or five bands, put them in these venues, and we are going to shoot a blunderbuss full of cash at these bands that that even the, the likes of which you've never seen. You're going to like, well, how does that work? Because they don't in some respects, they don't care if they make money on the show because they're selling twenty dollar parking, beer and hot dogs. They just need took in the seats. So that's a model when you have, we are able to overpay for the acts just to get, it's just, we need a jukebox yeah. band and a, and a couple of strong supports and let's boogie or a jam band and, and, and whatever, as long as you're putting people in the seats and they'll, they'll worry about the law and they'll group on everything. It doesn't matter. The hard yeah. tickets become less important. And then what happens is they end up selling, they end up with the ancillary revenue that makes the whole night make sense. I've heard legend of, I'll keep them unnamed, popular 90s jam band who would play amphitheaters and get 110% of gross for their deals. But the venues were so stoked to do it because of how the crap ton of money they were making in parking in hot dogs, in beer sales. Like you're saying, it's like, we know this band is going to bring people that like to drink beer and we're going to sell more beer on this gig and make more profit on that than, than what any traditional band would be in a regular promoter deal. 
A hundred percent. And you, you, you look like you're 27 years old, but I looked you up. You're 36. Okay. So you're old enough to, to remember this reference. Okay. <laughs> you ever, you remember when you were in the airlines, late nineties, early 2000s, and you would look at the American airlines magazine. And yeah. there was a guy who would used to do seminars. I, I believe he had passed away. His name was Charles Carras. And he had the centerfold to every uh, you know, airlines, corporate magazine that was in the seats. And his sure. whole slogan was, you only get and you're only worth what you negotiate. So if a band, let's say nameless jam yeah, yeah. band from the 90s, maybe having something to do with an aquatic theme, are able to go into a venue, okay, and go, listen, they're coming. And we know they're yeah. coming. And they're going to go, we actually want more than we're going to gross. And you take the deal or not. And it's not their fault. They've negotiated that deal. And that's, you know, my hat's off to their management. And, but it's also a testament to their sweat equity and their success. Yeah, totally. And the fact that they can fill the, the amphitheater and they know their fan base and the promoters knew their fan base. So, And it's they just set their watch and it's a no-brainer. That's the live side of things. Are I assume because of this conversation that you're not on a label. We're not on a label. I was signed to Sony when I was a kid. Um, yeah. Solo artist. I was on EMI in a band in the early 90s. I signed to Sony and it was the, my first solo album came out in 2000. We just had the 20th anniversary of it. And um, basically, you know, it was the end of the golden era of traditional record selling in the sense that you put out a record, sell 50,000 copies because people bought records. And because I was a blues guy on this giant major label, it just didn't do the numbers that they wanted. So I got dropped and then kind of meandered through life. And my manager and I said, well, let's put it out. And we made a deal with a, you know, a, a, a distribution company and um, just started JNR Ventures, basically. And we put out a record and we ended up selling. It's one, still one of my best selling pieces in the catalog. And it ended up selling less than the Sony record initially, but we made more and enough to, we, we made more and we had enough left over to make another record. That was the beginnings of this self-perpetuating mechanism, meaning that you have enough left over to make the next record. And so then you keep going and keep going, step and repeat, step and repeat. And then and then, you know, now we just we're, we just put out um, Joanna Connor. She's a wonderful musician uh, from Chicago. And um, I produced it along with a, a great guitar player uh, named Josh Smith, who you should have on this program. Yeah. Much better player and musician than I'll ever be, but I'm at least, at least more outspoken. Anyway, he, he and I produced this record and it's coming out on our Keeping the Blues Live a live label that um, we just started. And, you know, Jimmy Hall's next. We had Dion, the legendary Dion. He, he was the first on the label, um, putting out another record with him. So the, the model works when, when you can get enough traction and, and step and repeat. I love that. What is it about recording that you get as an artist that you don't get when you play live? You know, I miss the days when you can woodshed the tunes live. I miss the days when you can leave the good shows on stage and you can leave the bad shows on stage, or at least in the room, because now everything is uh, filmed, yep. summarily put on the internet, downs are given to all, and then here comes the armchair quarterbacks. You used to be able to woodshed the tunes and play them live, then go in the studio. So you, you had all sure. the little nuances worked out. Now it's a little bit different because if you start playing these songs live, you'd be like, hey, it's a new song. And by the time 
you record it, wait six months to market the record and it comes out, it's like, it's old news. You're like, oh yeah, I heard that six months ago. So in the studio, you try to capture stuff as live and as reactionary as possible without it becoming too loose. So you still want to like dot your I's and cross the T's, but you don't want to sit there and just agonize over like, is it, it, should the word be is or as or that in the grand scheme of it, it's not going to sell another record and it's not going to make the song mean anything more to someone if it doesn't, if it doesn't have the right intent and heart and soul behind it. What's the opposite for you then? What do you get out of the live experience that you don't get from making records? Oh, I see. I, I've never done an arrangement of a song live that sounded anything like the record. I can't, I, I, I just, I just weird contrarian in me. I have this really yeah. weird, if it's supposed to be done this way, I'm going to do it somewhere else. And I'm, and I think it's upstate New York, Italian spite. I don't know. You know, you were born in Poughkeepsie. Yeah. And, That's right. And some sort of chip on my shoulder. I don't understand it. And it's gotten me in a yeah. lot of trouble over the years. But <laughs> it's also who I am. And case sera, sera. You know, it is what it is. And and so, like, when I arrange a song for live, I'll extend the solos, maybe not even do a solo or change the key or change the feel of it all together. I mean, because I'm trying to take everybody on a journey. So if I need a if I need something up and I like the lyric and the chorus of something down, I'll move this tempo up. Yeah. You're like, why'd you do that? I'm like, because I can. You know, yeah. there's no rules. That that really is the the my favorite part of of live is is your best shows are the ones the band comes off the stage, you know, and sitting there and you, everybody's arms get longer and they start patting themselves on the back and you're like, oh my god, <laughs> look at look at us and our and our highfalutins. And then the the bad shows, everybody comes off and we're like, well, we really need to give them their money back, don't we? But conversely, the fans sometimes think the bad shows are better than the ones you think are. It's almost opposite. So at that point, there are no rules and you just go out there and give 100% of whatever percentage you have. Ooh, that's a nice. You give 100% of whatever percentage you have. Mm-hmm. If you got 80%, give 100% of the 80. If you got 50%, like I've gone up there feeling awful I sang a whole tour of bronchitis. I went yeah. 75% of those shows. I, I I probably shouldn't have been on stage. Like medically was I, I was, it was spite and steroids getting me through. Okay. It was like, <laughs> it was like literally dextamethasone, which I know well from that tour. Um, and it's a, it's, you know, when they start talking about the pandemic, it's like, well, dextamethasone. I'm like, yeah, I know I could lift the car on that shit. Okay. And spite, <laughs> but I gave a hundred percent of whatever percentage I had on that night. And it was it was brutal, but it's showbiz. In what you do as an artist, this goes songwriting, guitar playing, albums, touring, all of it, the, the all-encompassing Joe Bonamassa as an artist. Mm-hmm. Is there a guiding light? Is there a vision that you are that you are pointed towards? I think my lack of vision has been my greatest asset. I think my lack of directional fortitude I don't even know if that's a good way to put it in the sense that you, you, you get a record of mine. There could be stuff that sounds like Americana and yeah. stuff that sounds very British and Zeppelin-y and then straight up trad blues. And it could all be one song. And I'm, I have musical OCD and ADD. And, but I think the fact that I can switch gears and the records don't sound all the same. I think it's my best asset. I've really tried to focus in on different 
you know, making a record all in one style. And then I just, about six songs in, I go, it's starting to sound the same. I don't, yeah. We need to, we need to stop being mid tempo sludge. Where's that? You know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I need John Henry, the fifth, give me, give, yeah. give me something sludgy and So it's, it's, it's like that. You're known as a blues, blues rock guy. You said you love playing over blues rock changes. Where do you see the state of the blues right now and where it's headed? You know, the blues has always been written off. It's like, you know, I can I can pull up guitar world or guitar player articles from the 70s. You know, they go, is the blues dead? Rolling Stone, is the blues dead? It, it, it's this is this discussion has been 50 years. There's always somebody that comes along and gives it a B12 shot. Gary Clark Jr., for example. Okay. And uh, I have the utmost respect for anybody who gets out there and plays the blues rock whack-a-mole. Okay. And when I say blues rock whack-a-mole is like, if you have the balls to stick your head up and go, hi, I'm here, here to play some blues for you. There's going to be traditionalists with a club that is going to try yeah. to club you back down. Anybody who just, just, you know, I mean, some of my favorites are are um, Larkin Poe. They're doing something different with the blues. You know, yeah. I always, you know, I always loved the interpret like the fantastic Negrito. Okay, he's another one of my favorites. Okay, because I put his records on and I go, I, I get it, it's blues, but it's it's out and it, and it's fantastic. Yeah. That's why he calls himself Fantastic Negrito. That's self fulfilling yeah. prophecy. But what I'm saying is the traditionalists are like, well, it only should, should sound like this. But they said that about Clapton. They said that about mm. Zeppelin. They said that about all, all of that, that classic British stuff that I loved when I yeah. was a kid. And those guys were my host and conduits to Holland Wolf and Muddy Waters and, and Robert Johnson. OK, yeah. and and I don't feel ashamed that, that those were my hosts because the narrative should be like, well, you know, you're 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 not steeped in the real deal. It's like, well, I've listened to it all. But I also like John Mayo and the Blues Breakers. Sue me. What am I going to do? Yeah. You know, I, you only <laughs> like what you like. You know, yeah. it's so subjective and, and everybody has an opinion, especially now. So I think the state of the blues in a long winded answer is in really good hands because you're seeing a lot of creativity and a lot of cross pollination of genres. You're seeing hip hop come into into the blues. You're seeing blues go into hip hop. You're seeing it all kind of, you know, it, it amalgamate in a really cool way. And now that everybody's sitting at home and has their own recording rigs, you're going to get people just popping up out of nowhere going, boy, I wish I thought of that. Like the world, the world is kind of wide open, especially in this genre. And then all music. When you listen to players first starting to learn the blues, what's the most common thing you see that you want to fix when you hear them? Nothing. You know why? Because because they're gonna they're gonna interpret it the way they interpret it. We are in we. This isn't this isn't Bach or Mozart. It's mm. interpreted felt music. Yeah. You're a guitar player. I'm a guitar player. I can hand you my guitar, my amp, and you're gonna sound like Corey Wong probably with a lot more gain than you're used to. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and, and you're going to hand me your, your strat and I'm going to twist knobs and whatever, and make it sound like me because it's tactile. And I love the fact that people just grab a guitar and I had Bobby Rush on my show and um, Bobby Rush picked up a guitar and it was just a washburn acoustic was nothing special. And he started to play these voicings on the guitar that just made you melt. And you go, wow, it's unbelievable, unbelievable. Yeah. And he 
it's because it's all within us as musicians, not in the technical, like, well, you're not really, you know, you remember when you're taking guitar lessons and the, the teachers wanted you to put your thumb behind the neck and you go, this is uncomfortable. You know, and then you see Jimi Hendrix, he's fretting chords with his thumb. You're like, wait a minute, you know, yeah. there's no rules. So every time people ask me for advice, I give them this, be yourself. Don't apologize. Stick the landing. Don't waffle and don't, especially don't, don't apologize for who you are. Because if you if you're immediately apologizing, if you hand somebody a CD and go, hey, don't listen to track three, it's not that good. Then why'd you give me the CD? Why'd you yeah. put track three on there? Just go, I'm proud of this and I stand behind it. I love that. Before we actually started pressing record on this, we were talking a little bit about the experience, the Vince Gill interview and right. how he talked about having Jimi Hendrix's guitar. Now you got to play one of Eric Clapton's guitars. I got to play both. I got to play, well, what Guitar Center's holding. I got to play in one afternoon through my friends at Guitar Center. We went, I went up to Agora Hills, California, where the corporate offices, and they brought out these gig bags. Gig bags. Well, at least wow. a couple, couple of gig bags, and the cases were in the gig bag. I got to play the Harry Krishna 335, uh, 335 which is yeah. the one that made everybody want a block marker 64. Okay, it's, it's that guitar. Clapton at Albert Hall. The reason why I wanted to play Albert Hall was because of him yeah. and that guitar. Blackie and uh, uh, Lenny, Stevie Ray Vaughan's Lenny. Whoa! So I got to play all three of those in a single afternoon. One of the things that I did notice, and I had just a reissued deluxe reverb, and I did, I will say this, that the 335 is the most vibrant, lively, explosive sounding ES guitar I've ever played in my entire life. And I'm trying, and I tried to weigh, weigh the experience to go, is it, is this what I want to hear? Or is it what I'm actually hearing? Because yeah. this is hallowed ground for Joe B and a lot of people. And I said to him, I, I, I go, now this is actually just really effing good. And I go, wow, I could see why I liked it. Blackie was a rough ride for me. It was maybe as the strings were rustier, but it, but it, it was not like the most easy playing strap, but he, he sounded fine. He, he played the guitar throughout the 70s, and that was his guitar. What year is that one? It's a parts guitar. Oh, so okay. When, when Derek and the Dominoes played on the Johnny Cash show, um, it was at the Ryman Auditorium and across the street on Lower Broadway before it became like some sort of Vegas like attraction. OK, and I live close to there, so I, I, I could say this. It, it looks like Vegas only with a with a it's just deep fried Vegas. Right. Maybe that that'll be the clickbait. I'm going to I'm trying to figure out what the clickbait from this podcast is going to be on me. Maybe Nashville. The deep fried Vegas. Anyway, let me. Yeah, I digress. I digress. <laughs> I like that. Well, not naturally. You just Broadway. Just we'll, that we'll part. Just Broadway. that part yeah, of yeah. Broadway because it's all neon and it's all clubs and it's it looks like Vegas. It used to be a place called Showbuds Music, which you know they had they invented that pedal steel and they back in those days you could buy strats for a hundred bucks. So he bought a bunch of strats, put it all together, and that became black. And that's the that's Lee Dixon. Wow! And there was it was just a parts guitar. So this neck came off a of fifty six. The plate's got a dash on it, so it's got a fifty seven. The body is God knows what year, but that's when collectively the guitar cost him five hundred bucks. You know what I mean? And he brought in five different strats. There were tools, not these iconic, oh my God, you know, vintage 
relics. You know, that that was a great experience. And then getting to play Lenny's guitar, which is another kind of hybrid guitar. The neck is something. I don't even know if it's Fender neck or whatever. And, and it's a 65 body and pickups. And it was just something Stevie put together and happened to play Lenny on it. You know what I yeah. mean? So it was just, and we all know that guitar from when he sits on the stage at El Macambo, cigarette Macombo. hanging out his neck. Yeah. You're like, it's iconic. But what you have to sometimes, sometimes kind of separate is these were their screwdriver. This was their hammer. This was their saw. The 335, the Firebird, the Les Paul, the Strat. Those were Clapton's tools. Same thing with Stevie Ray. He had a bunch of different Strats. And he used them for whatever he he needed to get the sound that was stuck in his head out through the amplifier. And a lot of times, just like we're talking about, we we put the iconic status symbolism on those instruments themselves. Right. Yet, really, of course, it's the player who is the icon. Right. So what is it that makes a player iconic? The songs. The songs. It really is the songs. Because if you look at all the great... Everybody from BB, Holland Wolf, Muddy Waters, who I think one of the best slide players ever is Muddy Waters. You can identify him in two bars. Stevie Ray, Clapton, ZZ Top, Zeppelin. What do they all have in common? They have a bag full of great songs that are great vehicles for the guitar. And we all chase this. We all chase this. And, and there's a lot of great guitar playing sometimes truncated into writing that that could be better and and it's when you have both it's that's the magic of that's that's what make things iconic you know it's like albert king cutting which was a cover born under the bad born under a bad sign okay it was a cover but he didn't write it but he made it iconic because the song was that good and then when he did his thing to it you're like forget it it's 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 over when you played lenny you played Blackie, you played the Hare Krishna 335. Mm-hmm. You didn't all of a sudden sound like Clapton. You didn't sound like Stevie. You sounded like Joe Bonamassa. Yeah. How does somebody find their voice on an instrument or as an artist? And how do they recognize that? How do they develop that? First of all, I mean, I, I, I will say this. Um, th- thank you for the compliment. I, I don't believe I sound a very, uh, like I had, I struggled going, I, I am not a very original immaculate conception guitar player. Okay, I am would best be told is the 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 Swiss Army knife of guitar players. You want Danny Gatton? I got you covered. Give me a telly. I could sound just like him. Close your yeah. eyes. Clapton and Woodera, you know, because mm. I studied all this. And I, I yeah. would I would sit in my room as a kid and I would try to mimic the tones. You know, Eric Johnson got you covered. You know, you know, I'm a low budget version of a lot of great players. OK, but what I would what advice I would give to guitar players or or any musicians is don't run away from your own voice. Don't go, Oh, it doesn't quite sound the way I want it to sound because it kind of sounds like I've never something I've never heard. Well, that's good. And, and that's, that's a strength, not a weakness. Um, But a lot of guitar players are very self-conscious about that. And, 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 and we live, we live more in an era where your music, your playing, your entire career is judged, you know, at, at some point, you know, by a one minute Instagram video or YouTube video, you know, and and I was I was interviewing a, a guitar player the other day, um, young kid who was in school of rock and uh, just just, you know, a Taz. 
Tennis. I think you know. Him. Yeah. Brandon. And yeah. I was interviewing him from the great show player. and, and uh, he's great. Love it. Best hair in rock and roll, by the way. Right? <laughs> I was like, I was like, man, you can set, you watch that haircut. I love it. And I was interviewing him and, and um, I, he just happened to mention that like one of his, you know, cause he did the star spangled banner and he goes, he goes, man, I was so nervous cause I didn't want to become a meme. And he said it offhand kind of jokingly. And I go, after I hung up the phone and I sat there and I thought, I go, how fucked up is that for a young kid, right? That you have, that you get, you get a moment, you're, you're going to go shred. Not everybody, not everybody gets a, you know, not everybody gets it right. I've clammed hard on everything. You know what I mean? Because the internet is so vicious that the, somebody's going to make a meme and it's going to spread like wildfires, you know, on somebody who's just doing something out of the goodness of their heart, A, from their heart and B, with the best of, C, with the best of intentions. I think that's really, I think that's really awful and really something that, that society has to have a mea culpa and address. But to your point, you have to just, you know, just embrace your weaknesses, work on them and exacerbate your strengths. All right. All right. At the beginning of the episode, you heard me talking about DistroKid. I'm going to mention him again because it's worth it to me. I really think that if you are an artist, you should have an easy and comfortable way to upload your music and get it distributed to all the streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, YouTube Music, blah, 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 all that stuff. You should have a way to do that. DistroKid makes it really easy. And also, they don't take a percentage. They do not take a percentage of your royalties. That's amazing. All they do is charge a yearly fee. I love it. I use it. If you're making your own music and want to put it out there in the world, I would suggest using DistroKid. That's that. Easy as that. Let's get back to the interview. You mentioned the haters and the... I don't have any haters. <laughs> it's all we all have haters. We all have haters. I We all know many of them by name because some of them are relentless on things. Uh, you know, if we, if we choose to, to let ourselves look at the comment threads. Right. But it is something that any artist who's putting themselves out there now has to learn how to deal with. They have to learn how to deal with not just negative press, but the criticism of somebody who's had a couple too many beers on a Saturday night and is just dicking around on YouTube trying to burn off some steam. Or just somebody bored at work and is wanting to, you know, whatever. Or somebody who's just highly opinionated. Or somebody extraordinarily unhappy in themselves and wants to see if they can try to make the artist, whoever is putting the video out, make them feel as unhappy as they do. That's, that's the, that was the one thing that got me through a lot of the fire stuff was like, there's a lot of people that just want to see that they're, they're intrinsically unhappy. And, and you've seen it kind of grow in 2020 where everybody's home and depressed and mentally a little bit tweaked. And it's, it's a problem. The, the haters are, they're going to say what they will, but I've sold 9 million records. Somebody likes this shit. Yeah. You know, can I, say, I, I can show you the books. We can bring yeah. it. Somebody likes this. Yeah. Here's the number of albums sold, number of tickets sold. I'm like the Zam Fear. You're doing something remember right. Remember Zam Fear? <laughs> the Pan Flute guy. Guy goes, like, who the hell's that? He's got like 20, he sold 20 million records worldwide. Somebody likes it. That's right. I mean, and also, like you're saying, some people just feel bad about themselves. So there's a certain, for me, a sense of empathy that I have to have. Even for some people, there's a couple people that I that will regularly comment on things of mine. And I just think, you know, whatever, that's fine. I'll, I'll be their punching bag for the, on the internet and, and it doesn't affect me. Right. But honestly, I do have a certain level of empathy and I feel bad for 
whatever situation is going on in their life that makes them want to man like burn that off by saying horrible things about other guitar players or but it's also much easier okay when you're under the mask maybe it's a bad reference under the uh, under the veil or the mask of anonymity sure Meaning less Paul Lover 59 doesn't really like what I do, but you don't know that the guy's name is Brad and is a frustrated, bitter old man who who thinks that he should have gotten what I have, but just never had the balls to go work for it or whatever. Bad luck. It doesn't matter. The anonymity part of it. Now, if you post as Corey Wong and you want you want you want to give it as good as they get, it's like, look out, you're a creative person. But you're yeah. posting with one hand tied behind your back because you know you're a very visual public figure that will get that will get screenshot and then it then it's even worse. It's like it's like pouring gasoline on a fire. It's really I, and I should practice what I preach more. It's not worth the time of day to acknowledge it. But there are some things that are so stupid and petty <laughs> or just completely derived from the land of make-believe that you have to respond sometimes. You just have to go, yeah. whoa, 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 whoa. You, you're, you're, you're so far gone and, and yeah. have this, I don't know where you get these crazy ideas about me or what I do or why I do it, but all of a sudden it, you, you have this and now you've put it out there. You're just like, oh, well, that's, that's, it's wholesale insanity. Yeah. We know you can be a polarizing figure in the guitar community. Mm. What do people get wrong about you? Oh, what do people get wrong about me? You know, what people get wrong about me is they think I'm not self-aware. I'm very aware of it all. Mm. Okay. I'm aware of how polarizing. I've always been polarizing. Even when I was 20 years ago, I was polarizing. Okay. It, it's, it's always it's something that's followed me, whether it's self-inflicted or not. I'm, I'm opinionated and I stick the landing. So what? I'd rather be that than 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 completely media trained and you know just you know giving you the the vanilla ice cream. Okay, it's just like it's just that's not who I am, and I w- it would be a put on if I was to describe myself to anybody. What do they get wrong about Joe Bonamassa? It, 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 it would be this. It would it was I'm easily dismissed, but what I do is not easy, and you can dismiss it. You can say it sucks. You could say I'm arrogant. You could say whatever, but. What, what we've done as a, a company, what we've done for 30 years is not easy to do because if it was easy to do, somebody, everybody would do it. And, and, it, and that's the one thing that, that they do get wrong, that it, that it was somehow just I was silver spooned. The business just giveth, giveth, giveth. And, and I was just rocketed out of the, the, the gate with huge success as absolutely diametrically opposed to the truth. And it's it's sad that people come to that conclusion because I'm a middle class kid from Utica, New York, whose parents used to make about three hundred dollars a week. And the, the the stuff when they when they say like, oh, he's son of a rich kid or son, son, his father was a millionaire, put millions of dollars in his career. I'm like, Dad, where are those millions of dollars? I worked at a guitar shop when I was a kid. My dad had a guitar shop. We come from very humble beginnings and don't apologize for things. It, it, and we don't especially hard work which it was hard work and it is still hard work. So that's what people get wrong about me is, is I'm some, some sort of like silver spoon kid that didn't work for it. I'm not. What you do is definitely not easy. And yeah, you, you're right about, I mean, even just the beginning of this conversation, talking about being able to get yourself to the place where you can even be considered to rent out a venue yourself and not be just laughed at. It's like, no, you have to have some serious 
serious uh, clout to be able to do that. I, I have always said, and, and when I say, you know, when I say this, like what I do is not easy. I'm not, I'm not saying on the guitar. I'm saying just in general, the whole, the, the, the 360 degree model of it all is, is incredibly risky. Takes some business acumen. Luckily my, my manager is a world-class CEO and accountant and has extremely good business acumen. And, you know, that's the thing. It's not easy, but it's easily dismissed in the sense. Oh, it's just it's fine. That's fine. If they want to dismiss it, it's it's another thing to try it and then go, OK, that bozo is actually he's like a broken watch. Right. A couple of times a day. <laughs> no, it's really it's yeah, you're you're absolutely right. A lot of people think it's easy to do even just a career as a musician. It's all fun. It's all whatever. It's really freaking hard. Very rewarding, but it takes a lot of hard work. Well, it also is too. It's it's when you when you crossfade, and you know this because you know you're in a very successful band. Okay, when when you're fighting the good fight and you're you're on the upstream, right? It's like they're rooting for the underdog. When it crossfades until now, you're the now you're the big big dog in the in the genre. Then they then they start poking holes, and I saw it. I saw how it goes like that. And you're like, I-, I don't understand. You were rooting for me to get here. Now you're rooting for me to fail. I don't get it. The same people, you know? And so, oh, you've changed, man. It used to be about the music. It's the same song. Yeah. Okay. I've only changed <laughs> my hair. I got less hair. I'm old. I'm 44. Okay. So, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, uh, you, you know, it's like, what's changed? Nothing. It's, you, you still do it because you love it. You still give that. 100% of whatever percentage you have. You are well known as a vintage gear collector. I'm a hobbyist, really. But yeah, I have a few. Oh, come on. You probably have uh, the, the two largest collections I can think of besides some. Well, I don't know. It's, there's that like Dave's guitar shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Yeah, Dave's got a lot of guitars. I mean, if, if I probably know most of the big collections that are out there. If yeah. in the world, I'm probably probably somewhere between 15 and 20 ranked. Uh, really? Yeah. There's a there's a surprising amount of people that are ahead of you. As far as amps are concerned, I may be I may be king <laughs> B. I don't know. Yeah. Cuz 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 A no nobody's ever had this like baffling you know obsession with tweed like I did for a while. Yeah. But it it, it doesn't it's not it, I collect guitars because I love them. And and I always loved them. I remember when I was a kid, I bought a 68 telly that was brush painted blue and had three select EMGs jammed in there. Two humbuckers and a single coil, 300 bucks. I thought I was like George Gruen. I, I, I go, I go, look at this. It's got like patina on the neck. 11 years old. The problem is when, you know, you get to your point of your career where we've done pretty well and sold some records and then you're just like a kid with no no authority figure and then it's just it's just on and you know what you're looking at and you know what you're doing because your dad was a guitar dealer it's it was the perfect storm for something like that to happen you know i i i play them i don't just glass case them yeah but you know i I don't play them all obviously because there's some that are so preserved but it's it's a passion. I enjoy it. I like the people that I've met through the community. I yeah. I you know it's just something that that in, intrigues me and uh, the manufacturing process that that went on between Gibson and Fender and 
that was it. You know, I was sold. Yeah, because I was going to ask you, what's what's the end game? But you're just uh, passionate. You just love it. The end game is room. And I know some people that like, you know, and I'm right at the precipice of this. OK, when you when you're on, when you, when you have a large collection of anything, it could be humble figurines. It could be it could be spoons. It could be whatever guitars or or you know, wagon wheels. Okay. You get to a certain point in the collecting. Okay. And you see it a lot on that show, American Pickers, where the, yeah. where these cats basically collected their entire lives, had enough space to put 8,000 wagon wheels in a barn. Now wake up and they're 75 years old and, they, and their family's going, Hey, by the way, what are you gonna do with all those freaking wagons? <laughs> yeah. You know, because yeah. we don't want to deal with the wagon wheels, okay? Yeah. When you get to that point where it starts to become tenuous, where it would, if I said I'm out today, after I hang up the, the, the call here, and I said I'm out, it would take me five years to unwind the, the whole collection. Take me five years to unwind it astutely. Because if I said, just sell all the tweet amps. Well, what happens if 145 tweet amps came on the market at the same time, all in mint condition? Price, price would drop. So it, you're in a supply and demand business. And that's that's one of the things about collecting that's 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 very, very dicey. But I do serve both masters. I am a guitar player who collects. So I have the stuff that I play and then I have the stuff I collect. Did you buy anything from the Walter Becker estate sale? I did not. I did not. But he had tons of stuff. And that was another problem. That, that, that was a real lesson for me, you know, going, man, he, you know, he died suddenly. You know, if I, if I walk on the street today in Manhattan and get hit by a bus because it's snowing, my niece and nephew are going to have to, and my parents and sister and brother-in-law have a lot to deal with. And I don't want to, I really don't want them to have to deal with all that. But you know, one of the one thing is, oh, Corey, is I, I put it in my will. And it's serious. I'm serious about this when I say it. As long as they go to whatever guitars that get sold. If, you know, there's going to be a lot of people poking around wanting deals and stuff like that. If somebody buys something too cheap from either my estate or my parents, or God forbid, my niece and nephew or sister and brother-in-law, it's guaranteed in my will that I will haunt them from beyond the grave. <laughs> you got to get full price. No, no. I, I don't want full retail. But if somebody walks out and go, ha, I really got them haunted from beyond the grave. That's a guarantee. Oh, okay. I like that. You know, I like you're that. Be in your house and you could be looking at that tweed basement and be like, boy, I really took I really took that Bonamassa estate sale for a ride. And all of a sudden the dishes are going to start coming out of the, the, the counter. OK, I will poltergeist those motherfuckers. Respect for the craft of selling <laughs> gear. Yeah, I was I see. I wanted to buy some out of the Walter Becker estate just because I'm a Steely Dan nut. Right. I, I got I got the oh, they had a beautiful catalog with all the stuff. There was a few guitars I really, really wanted. He had a, there was a John Mayer signature Martin mm -hmm. that I wanted to buy because it would be Walter Becker's John Mayer signature guitar. I kind of get two in one. Right, you know? right. I, I've shied away from buying my Heroes guitars because I've had a few opportunities to buy like the Kossoff guitar. And I ultimately passed because yeah. it's that, not the kind of collecting that I do. It's, it's, it, I'm, I'm a Leo Fender, Ted McCarty guy. You know, and, and I, I, I like Leo Fender's stuff and I like, you know, Gibson stuff from that golden era. You know, the instruments have cool personal family history. You know what I mean? That's that's good enough for me. Now, I'm going to do my answer second because it's going to transfer us as soon as I say my answer. It's going to it's going to spark spark some 
potential controversy, Uh-oh. okay? Here we go. So, <laughs> so I want your answer to be clean so we don't have to go down that road with you, too. Right. Right now, just given today, you got to pick one of the amps in your collection. Now, now like let's let's we're we're just going to be twilight zone about it. It's not like you 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 can't get another one again. It's just you pick one amp, that's the amp you're going to be playing the rest of your life. Right. And one guitar, what is it? I can do my entire catalog on an 80 watt tweed twin of some kind mm-hmm. and a Fender Telecaster with a humbucker in the front and a flat humbucker up front and a single and, coil on the back and, and a flat pole single coil on the back. I could do the whole catalog with that. Um, Respect. And w- it would be difficult. Yeah. But it would be, it would be possible. You know, what percentage of your fans would actually notice the difference? That's what I sometimes ask myself. Yeah, right, right. You know, <laughs> well, that's the thing. You know, it's like you, you, you it's going to sound like you either way. Yeah. It's totally. going to sound like you either way. And that, that, that's yeah. the most important thing. And that's a testament to your, 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 your skill set. You know, and it's like we were talking earlier about like with advice or, you know, it's like if it sounds like you, that's a good thing. If you don't like the way you sound, then work at it to try to change it, you know, but don't run away from it because it doesn't sound like, you know, they don't sound like Corey Wong or whoever, you know, and it, it doesn't matter. You're building your own identity through music and instrumentation. Have you done the true amp and guitar shootout for yourself? We line up the 10 amps and you just thought like, this is my sound. I have so many different styles on my records. There's no sound, you know, I know my fans and they're going to get their wish. I don't know when this airs, but we're, we're doing a little uh, power trio tour. Um, Nice. We're going to do a, a, it's, you know, truncated audiences, socially distanced. I I could, I could read the legalese and, and masks and everything. Yes. Yeah. yeah, It'll be safe. And we're, we're going to do like five shows. The, the, the great thing about it, you know, like we're, we're going to go do it and we're going to do a live stream and a, and, a, and a new DVD with the power trail. And I know my fans have been wanting me to break out the Marshall rig again and they're going to get their way. And, and, and it's going to be weird. <laughs> and they're yeah. going to, there's going to be the pedal board, the whole thing that's been mothballed since 2013. And I'll be like, I don't, I'm not sure if I can handle this anymore, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that's, that's a sound, you know, but I don't have I don't have a sound. I sound like a lot of people, a hybrid. And I will never line line up amps. I, I could line up a Tweed Deluxe and a Blackface Deluxe and uh, something else and a new boutique amp and stuff like that. And you just twist the dials, and it kind of all it starts sounding like you. Eventually, you always kind of default to where you're at. What about you? I mean, like, do do you find that? No matter what you plug through or the gear, whatever, it's like it needs to do this kind of thing. And if and you could interchange a strat for something with a single coil, as long as you're within those parameters, it sounds like yourself. Yeah, I'm pretty much any any app that can play clean. I'll find I'll tweak the knobs enough. So and so as like within one minute, I will sound like me. Mm-hmm. The only, for whatever reason, and this is not a slight on them, they're just made for a different sound. Orange amps, I have a hard time finding my sound with orange. Right. But pretty much, like on a Marshall, I put it on one, right. you know, and then and then it sounds clean enough for me. Or, you know, pretty much any, yeah, any Fender amp, I sound great on. It's just, and I can make it sound like me. But I did an amp shootout, and, and if when I give my answer here, 
you hang up the phone, I won't, uh, you know, I'll, I'll know that it, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not unoffendable, by the way. I, okay, I, good. I, just good. Teflon. But if you if you happen to hang up after hearing my answer, you know, it's been it's been really great to spend some time with you today. Well, I'd like uh, <laughs> So vintage fenders had a vintage super reverb, vintage AC thirty, seventies. Sorry. I know you're you're specific. No, that's fine. It's um yeah. Almost yeah. fifty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like me. Um a reissue twin, a vintage twin, uh Dumble Overdrive special. And a DV Mark raw dog, the Eric Gale signature. Very good choice. Very clean, by the way. Loudest, cleanest thing I've ever heard. And a JC120. The winner was the Eric Gale signature, the DV Mark. That was what I I just felt like it was the for my thing and for the clean tone. It just felt like it gave that kind of Prince close in your face thing. And it also had enough power to it. It had enough oomph. I was very surprised. And I I blind tested all the amps with a bunch of my friends. And the raw dog happened to every time be in the top two choices. So were you just going for straight clean tone? Or were you going for both? Clean. And then for me, an overdrive is... I, I don't go super... I don't go a lot of distortion. I don't go... St- heavy overdrive i would call it call it basically like a, a ts808 around noon okay most, so no, most knobs around noon like a like a half driven fender amp ish yeah yeah clean to half driven fender i just recorded um i just produced eric gale's new solo album and uh along with josh smith and um i recorded that raw dog amp and basically we found in the studio because he likes to play Straight clean, and then he has his gain stages in front of it. And he's the type of player you like. Give him a Les Paul, you give him a Telly, but it, it, he's this insanely talented, he's insane freak of nature. Yes. I've known him for twenty five. We we use one of my um, eighty watt Tweed Twin reissues, and his his um, his his uh, a DB Mark. And I like solid state amps because the immediacy. Um, yes. Not only the clean, but the overdrive. It's it's really really immediate because my kryptonite is too much squish, too much gain. I'm useless. Might as well just go to Rite Aid, buy toothpaste. Okay, like, like not even participating in this conversation. You know, like like you get some of those boutique amps with 800 knobs on it, and you put it up to like one and a half, and it's it's already way too much. I I, I can't do anything. You know. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's not. It's feels weird to play. But he he you know it's it, that's a great choice. It's a great amp. And by the way, you never discount the the always always give a solid state amp a second look because Lab Series L5 BB King, Box Super Beetle, one of one of the great um, plug a Les Paul into that and you'll be like, wow, that's killer. Four twelves and a horn, and it's rocking. And my personal favorite is the Rickenbacker Transonic series from like the late sixties. And Jimmy Page used them and Beck used them back in the, the, the days. And they were they were just big old solid state heads with a built-in fuzz. And but the immediacy on the overdrive is almost exactly like if you were just playing the guitar acoustically. And I love yeah. that. Absolutely love that. I appreciate you saying that. Cause I've i I'm like this closeted solid state guy. <laughs> you know, like I love solid state amps because of that. Well, you know, I'm just such a rhythmic right, right, right. thing. You, you, so, you can't have the latency. 
there is yeah. a latency with the tube because there is natural compression and there's yeah. everything is firing. Solid state is immediate, especially and it's loud as all get out because those little DB mark things are like 300 watts because it's a different, they're using a transformerless solid state technology. It weighs yeah. two pounds and it's 500 watts. So, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. A base and you go, it's, you know, angular has a one that Mike Merritt uses in our jazz funk gigs. And it's amazing how, the, the, how big the sound is out of this little box, I know. you know, and it's, and it's great. And listen, your sound is being plugged into whatever Albert King used the JCM 120s. So did Lonnie Mack at the end of his career. They loved him. I like hearing this from you. That, that's, I kind of have this breath of, I, I, there's an air off my shoulder. There's a weight off my shoulders now, knowing that I got, I got your, your okay on the, on the solid state. Listen, everybody <laughs> accuses me of being a cork sniffer. I can tell you this. <laughs> you, 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 basically, if you take, you could take a crate solid state amp, okay, and some sort of 70s master volume twin, twist the knobs, get everything kind of talking, and basically achieve what I achieve with two twins and a dumble or two dumbbells. And mm -hmm. I'll tell you why. Because what all I do is mid-stack, is the twins do the high and the low, and they have the they have more power, believe it or not. And the dumbbells are set extraordinarily narrow. So that mid-range really? of the overdrive section of the dumbbell, not the clean section, but the overdrive section. It fills in the frequency gaps, so the whole thing sounds bigger, and the whole thing sounds like it's it's it, 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 you know it's full range guitar, and that's that's basically it. But you don't you can you can achieve that with a five hundred dollar rig, a hot rod Deville and a and a and a and a Randall. You know, it, it doesn't matter. You just as long as that's the sound that you want. So if somebody wants to replicate that sort of thing, you're talking. Okay, so you use two amps that are more mid-scooped and then one amp that's more mid-narrow-mids-focused. Do you do anything interesting with the panning? Sorry, I interrupted. No, no, no. It's all straight up the middle. And basically, it's the fenders are naturally more scooped, but the tweeds are a little bit more mid-rangey. If you know what I mean? The black yeah. face amps are a little bit more yeah. scooped intrinsically, and then yeah. the tweeds are a little more narrow. And then I drive something else up the middle of, of the, 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 the bass tone, which is basically the fenders. It used to be the Marshalls, now it's the fenders. And, and that's it. And you just kind of keep turning dials until it feels big and thick. And yeah. there's no difference frequency-wise between your wound strings and your unwound strings. It stays big and thick on the high strings as it is on the low strings. So that's, that's just my trick. I think that's a little nuance that not everybody would know to listen for. That's a hot tip. Well, that mid-stacking is something I've been doing my whole life. And it used to be a Vox and a, and a Marshall or, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, but I also play super, super loud, loud, volume loud. And I use a I use the Perspex, the, the shield in front. So it's yeah. not, I'm not I'm not here to assault my audience. Yeah, <laughs> it's not, it's not, you know, whatever's left of it. But I, I don't want I don't want to assault people on that kind of level. But I also need it to be certain amount of volume. And I don't yeah. do, I don't do in-ears. I do straight wedges. And, and okay. because I like to have the clean headroom on the guitar. I don't. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a clean sound and a distorted sound. I have three on the Les Paul and all the way up. And I have five on the Strat and all the way up. 
You know what I mean? And that's my clean, dirty sound. It's just, I, I'm using the volume control. So I need that mm. headroom. Have you found any modeling gear that you love? You know, I messed with the um, I messed with the Fractal, or what's the other one? Is it the Kemper? Now it's like, it's Kemper, Fractal, Neural DSP, the Quad Cortex, and then their plugins, and um, Line 6. That's, to me, like the ones that I think of. I used to like the Line 6. This, this is why they call me a boomer, okay? I used to like the original Line 6 pod. You remember those, the red ones? They used to do the greatest 65 twin reverb ever. Like, it just sounded like a twin reverb and a good one, you know? Um, I've messed with the Kemper. I've messed with um, I've messed with a, uh, the fractal at one point. Uh, a friend of mine had it, and I was just curious and 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 stuff like that. Uh, it's not for me because there's way too many variables that I have to go in and suss out that that I don't want to actually have to suss out. I don't want to choose between a Celestion and a JBL and a 57 off center. And, and, you know, because you can go down these rabbit holes and you're like, well, I'm no, I I just, it's not for me because I'd rather just stick a mic in front of it and move it around and whatever. And I also believe in, in, in moving air, you know, it's, and I know the fractals are great if you cut it with an amp that's moving air and you can kind of fill in the gaps. And I also know a lot of people use them for effects through their loop, which is supposed to be really, really good and, and, and stuff like that. But the modeling thing is probably not for me, but I never rule it out. I mean, like, you know, I know people like, I think, I think Trevor Rabin uses two Kempers and, and, and he sounds amazing, you know, and because he's got to cut all those, you know, 90125 parts, you know, from, from yes in the eighties, you know, so it, it depends on the gig. My gig does not require that level of technology. You know, if you're playing with a with a with a superstar country act or a big pop act or whatever, then of course you got you got to cover all these tones. Plus, they yeah. want you to MIDI the thing to the to the Pro Tools, and yeah, and here we go. Uh, to close out, fun little fun little questionnaire because people always want to buy gear. We're guitar players; we want right. to buy gear. You know this more than anybody. Yes. Three questions: Is there a piece of gear? 20 bucks ish or less that everybody every guitar player needs a working cable great answer purchase 200 bucks ish or less that every guitar player needs a reissue tube screamer reissue tube screamer yeah which uh which one doesn't matter a, any of as long as it's green it's got three knobs the three okay three knobs reissue tube screamer i love that is that your overdrive of choice by the way I use um, I use an overrated special, um, which is a, basically it's it's a green rhino that 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 we came up with this funky name for, and um, it works better than the tube screamer with the pre distorted amps. Meaning meaning I, I, my baseline of gain is pretty high, so the tube screamer tends to get a little bit too narrow. Where the overrated special that George Trips makes. It, it 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 retains the bottom end a lot better and it feels more open ah, to me. And okay. for that reason. But if you're in a jam, you got the little green box, reissue twin, dump the bright switch, turn the amp up, crank the gain, you're good to go. 
And it's in there, what, 179 I'm trying to keep to the price point. I, I, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think I respect the, it. the cable comment is a little bit out of touch with reality because I don't think good cables are 20 bucks anymore. Maybe I'm just like out of line. I, I think that I'm going to get clickbaited for that answer. That's all right. Bonamassa thinks good cables cost less than... Out of touch yeah. Bonamassa. <laughs> out of touch Boomer Massa hasn't purchased his own cable since the 90s, you know? <laughs> Well, that's interesting what you say about the the tube screamer. So I play like you know clean amps, mm-hmm. similar to what Gales does. I do my overdrives in the pedal board. Right. What do you suggest for me as an overdrive if I want the call it uh, John ten years ago John Mayer meets Clapton lead sound? Is that still an overdrive? You mean like uh you you mean like that like kind of thick really round sound? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I would, you know, the, the, the thing about what, what, what Eric does is he has that mid boost in his, in his guitar. And, yeah. and if you've ever messed with one and you, you turn the mid boost up to like five or six and you got like a tweed amp or something like that, you go, it's, it's, and you're on the middle pickup. You're like, okay, this is how he does it. You know? Yeah. And he basically plugs straight in. I'm not very well versed in the thousands and thousands of boutique pedals, but I would say if you were to, require something like that you could you could probably achieve it pretty closely with either some sort of uh bk butler tube driver or probably a combination of like a dynacomp and like a like a i don't know dynacomp and like a like a like a big muff something that keeps everything Mm. together but yet the the big muff fuzz isn't as sputtery as like a fuzz face so it's it's really so you get that big thick mid-range it's just that big thick thing in the middle okay cool i dig it that's a boomer answer by the way it's like i like it there's probably there's probably a pedal that out there just goes it just does it you know (laughs) it's the mayor clap it's the mayor clap you know (laughs) a jhs you know what i I don't know yeah purchase that you would suggest to any guitar player if price was no issue at all? Oh, purchase if price was no issue. Like if I came to you, I said, Joe, look, what do I absolutely need as a guitar player? I have literally every dollar that exists. I, If it was me, and I know this sounds like really flippant, take that money you're going to spend on whatever for your unlimited budget and invest it in your business. Not, hmm. not your gear. Invest it in your business. And when your business does well, then you can invest it in your gear. like that. Because I know people don't come to see a 59 Les Paul. They come to see my songs and, and the guy in the suit and sunglasses. You know, the bonus is like, I'm playing a 59 Les Paul. You know? But that's not why they come and see it. it it's, it's the act. It's the entertainment value of it. I like that. Well, Joe, you mentioned you got power trio tour thing coming up can we expect a power trio album uh we're doing the next album three piece but i think it's gonna uh, you know it's gonna escalate you know i I don't know i mean i i i want to see how this power trio tour goes do i like it do i have the can i still play like that you know Ah. you know because it's that's a young man's game when i was 23 playing in the power trio i was fearless yeah like had all this unbridled enthusiasm and zest for life yeah but now a little more muted. I don't know if you can tell from this podcast. I'm a little bit more muted. Jason, All right. Jason knows me from back in those days. Like when, when those rundowns. 
like young whippersnap full of life pre-social media it's great great time to be alive free social media yeah before social media was a great time to be alive everything yeah you left everything in the room well joe thanks so much for joining us today it's really a treat to talk to you Corey. it's my pleasure anytime and uh, congratulations on the success of the podcast and and the success of your band i'm a big fan and and um you know you've brought instrumental music and and complex arrangements to the masses and that's not easy to do so the next time somebody trolls you just to say (laughs) jobo says what i do is not easy well i appreciate that man thanks no problem Thanks. thanks for having me there you have it is that what you expected from an interview with joe bonamassa i don't know it was nice to hear him speak candidly about different things and i love hearing about this whole touring business because as an independent artist nowadays you gotta you gotta be aware of that sort of stuff and it's cool how aware he is of that and how much attention he puts into that i'm inspired to, to get hustling a little more even myself on that side of things so thanks for being with us appreciate it we'll see you next week peace